Well, welcome back to Reflection as a Service. We're thrilled to be here. I'm here with my partner in crime, James Jeffers, and I am Paul Merrill, and we're happy to be on episode three. Today, we're going to have Mary Thorne from, uh, from IPRIO. She's a director of software test engineering at IPRIO. She's also written a really great book called The Three Pillars of Agile Testing and Quality. And James and I have both been studying up on it and have some really tough questions for her. So I think we're going to have a really fascinating time talking to her. Um, James, I just want to check in with you and see how things are going this week with uh, your Twitter followers. Are they, <laughs> they coming along? Or? Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I don't actually keep track of you know, what bots are tracking me this week or not. Um, but actually, uh, some of the folks that I work with uh, or nomad with in the area, uh, they've said, hey, yeah, we, like, we've, we've actually heard the podcast. And so they've had oh, generally positive things to say about it. So that's good. Well, that's awesome. You know, and I was looking at the, the number of, of recording, the number of listens and things like that. So our first episode is up to like 28 listens, which is double what it was last time we talked on episode yeah. two. And then the, the episode two is up to 21. So we definitely have something going on here. Now, is there an email address that if someone has a comment, they can send comments to us or are they just going to contact us on Twitter? Or? You know, well, Twitter's good. So at reflection AAS is a good way to get a hold of us. And then the other thing is, yeah, I, I do have an email address. I have RAAS at BeauftFairmont.com, okay. but I, I don't check it. So <laughs> so Twitter Twitter is much better. Well, don't send it there because <laughs> right. it's not going to be as productive as you might otherwise think. Right. So so let me read the thing that my marketing person always tells me I have to read. So um, we, we at Beaufort Fairmont do automated testing. That's my company, my consultancy that I created several years ago. Um, we write software to test software. We take the burden off of your teams by delivering advanced reliable and efficient automated software testing our soft our software services are customizable to meet your needs so when your team needs automated testing suites and frameworks built consulting for automation projects or training and coaching to introduce automated testing to your team we can help we meet your team right where it is at we are proficient in robot framework cucumber selenium web driver and many others we're proficient in c sharp java javascript objective c and other languages call us right now at 984-244-2313 or email us at info at beaufortfairmont.com to start automating your testing today and james of course works with the consultancy that he's created called code providence that's right yeah we help clients of all sizes make a software that has a big impact Excellent. See, I got to get something short like that. I like that a lot. <laughs> and, yeah, and, cool. you, and I can be reached at Twitter at, uh, at JD Jeffers. Excellent. And I'm at D Paul Merrill. I'm really excited to have Mary on the podcast now. We, she is the chief storyteller of the book, The Three Pillars of Agile Testing and Quality, written by Bob Galen. Mary Thorne is the director of software engineering at IPRIO in Raleigh, North Carolina. Mary has a broad testing background that spans automation, data warehouses, and web-based systems in a wide variety of technologies and testing techniques. During her more than 17 years of experience in healthcare, HR, financial, and services of software-based products, Mary has held manager and contributor level positions in software development organizations. A strong leader in agile testing methodologies, she has direct experience leading teams through agile adoption and beyond. Mary, thanks for joining us. Welcome. Thanks for the invite. I appreciate it. Yeah, well, we've been looking forward to this, and uh, both James and I have read your book. And I have to ask, before we get into it, who put Mary in the corner? 
<laughs> Let's put it this way. Bob Galen has tried not to keep me in the corner. No. <laughs> so I, I couldn't have, look, um, writing books are hard. And, and Bob has, um, has been my mentor ever since I worked with him at Eye Contact. Um, he, he was my boss at Eye Contact. And then after that, he's kind of always uh, been a little birdie in the behind my ear. And after Eye Contact, we went to, to uh, Deutsche Bank. And during our days between those, we had several conversations of, of what we thought good agile testing looked like. And Bob came up with this concept of the three pillars and, and saying, you know, this is what we really did well at Eye Contact. And I feel strongly that there's a lot of good here that we could, you know, pass on to others that are kind of going through that agile transformation and understanding what good agile testing looks like. And, and I said, I'm a believer. You know, I feel this is the most successful I've ever been as far as getting testing to where I want point where, you know, to the point where I want it to be. And so I said, you know, I'll, I'll preach it. Let's, let's write it. And so, you know, it was one of those things that started up with an idea of like, I'll do one chapter, you do the other chapter. And then, you know, I have life and he has life. And then it took a little while to get through there. And, um, writing is very hard and Bob has written several books. And so for him, it comes a little easier. And so it came to a point where I was like, Bob, I can't commit to writing all these chapters. I ended up writing um, all of chapter six. And I did the assessment that comes with it. Um, and then, uh, you know, the, the goal is to eventually have more chapters. Um, but he came up with the, the first couple chapters and I would be like, um, yeah, but, you know, and, and I'd be like, what about this, this, and this? He said, why don't you just be the chief storyteller because you have some good, st- you know, I'm this like 3,000 foot guy in the sky, but you're the one who's actually practically in the trenches every day and show your view. And so that's kind of how we came up with the format of the book. And then since then, uh, for instance, next week I'm going to be at Star West with him doing our three pillars um, workshop. And so we kind of play that that um, nice little kind of cat and mouse game where he's the he's the pie in the sky guy and when I'm like, all right, Bob, let's talk about pragmatically how this would really work and how you know how we can our success stories of doing these things with real examples, right? And so, um, so that's kind of how we how we played the book and eventually we'll add more chapters um, as we get you know more ideas and things like that. Um, but but it's been a been it was a fun journey and. You know, it's we're still on it to a certain extent, but well, it's it's a, good. it's a good book. I mean, I I just finished reading it this evening, and it's very good. I really, you mentioned the appendix in the back, which was an assessment for teams to figure out how far along they are with agile testing and quality. And I thought that was a really nice addition. I, I usually don't care about references in the back of the book, but this one I think asks a lot of really good questions of teams. Yeah, and so what was interesting is when I was at Deutsche Bank, um, one of the things that they are always challenging is their bank, right? And so they want metrics. And they were so used to the hardcore waterfall metrics of how many test cases do you have? How many test cases passed? How many bugs did you find? How many bugs are fixed? And and we know when we're moving to, to, to an agile world, those metrics have no value anymore, right? And uh, I kind of brought this concept up to, to my boss at the time and was challenging him to say, I don't really care about those anymore. These are the things that I care about, you know, from an agile testing perspective. Are we doing risk-based testing? Are we, you know, how's our test automation going? Do we, does a whole team own quality? You know, do we have a, a guidance around where um, testing should go? And so uh, one of the teams, about that same time, Forrester came out with a agile um, testing tool. 
and uh, around uh, how you know same sort of you know radar chart assessment view. And so uh, I use that as a hey, I really like that idea. It's not a hardcore. It's it's more subjective than it is objective, but you can use both of the views, and um, and it's a something to way to say this is what we you know if. If, if we want the black line or the 80% rule, you know, this is what good looks like, and you're at, and, you hit, and the red line is under inside that, then these are the areas where you can improve, and we give you specific points of where, you know, where you're at and where you should be and, and how you get better. And so um, I used that, uh, it was a very good, starting my new job um, at IPRIO the last eight weeks, I lit, the first three weeks I was there, I was listening to everybody's pain points, and then what was interesting is like, okay, Mary, you have an assessment framework. Why don't you assess if um, I pre-owed where you are? <laughs> and uh, so it was good. I, I got to reuse it and, um, uh, you know, give us a great, not, you know, not really a grade, but like a view of where we need to improve. And so when I came, you know, came out with my roadmap, I said, based on the assessment and what I think are the right steps to move us to the next level, you know, here's here's the areas that I'm going to tackle first, and and the other part of that is is you know Bob does a lot of consulting, and um, well he is mostly a full time consultant, and we also thought you know for other companies who have a test leader but maybe ha- have been in that waterfall world right and is just moving to agile, or somebody who's been in agile a year or two maybe in a maybe a norming phase but not really high performing, um, you know he could come in give this assessment of where they are from a quality perspective. Um, and then you show them areas really quickly of, hey, if you just were to fix this or this, you should, you know, be able to to increase your velocity or um, quality and defects would would you know go down, kind of thing. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah, it looks like a really great tool, and the the book as a whole is, I think, really valuable. Um, and frankly, the price when you go into Kindle at nine ninety nine, um, you're definitely going to get more than nine dollars and ninety nine worth steal. of value out of it. What's that, James? It's a steal. It's a steal. Yeah, you're going to see a lot more value than that out of it. And I, I really like the way that you look at it. I like the fact that it comes from a quality perspective and from a testing perspective. I think there aren't enough books out there coming from that perspective. So one thing that I noticed in there that I really liked is you said you got rid of Quality Center, Mary, at, at a certain place. And you saved the company like $100,000 a year at least. You know, through my years of experience, um, you know, when we were 10 years ago in Waterfall Worlds, you know, we didn't have an option um, for like test ca- open source test case management tools or open source automation tools, right? And so it was one of those things that we were paying hundred thousands of dollars a year to HP because nobody else had a product as good as them, either from a test case management perspective or from a um, automation perspective. And uh, when Selenium came out, and we realized that it did just as good or better than what uh, you know we were doing with, with QTP, uh, in quality center, we made a decision as a company to save that hundred thousand dollars a year, add ourselves two testers <laughs> and, you know, to this one, what those licenses are and went open source. And so, um, I often tell people, you know, even when I'm at a pre right now, I say, I don't pay for my tools if I can build them, um, especially because I build them for the needs of what I have specifically versus, a tool that can do it, but it's it's more generic because it has to fit more needs. Um, and so basically, you know, right at IPRIO right now, we have, say, five or six open uh, different automation tools because there was no governance around it before I got in. And so I'm trying to, again, standardize it on a spec flow, driving Selenium or Protractor JS UI automation 
and then SpecFlow you know, running uh, on executing integration tests through just Visual Studio and, and APIs and store procedures and and helpers and direct code directly uh, contacting the code. So um, now we have, of course, Visual Studio does cost, uh, but other than that, that's that's all I need right now. Is from an automation standpoint to, yeah. to be successful. Yeah. And you were going to have Visual Studio anyway, so yeah. I mean, it's not like an added cost for anything. Definitely. Yeah, I hear you. So many good open source tools out there these days and so much you can do with them. And there are so many plugins with the tools that are out there, um, whether it's between you know Jira and some of these other tools or, um, or, or whatever it is. It just seems like you can do the, the full life cycle that we need within testing and have a defect linked to uh, the feature that that caused well that that helped initiate it in some in something that gave it momentum I guess um, you can link all those things together and link them all the way down to the test and have traceability through everything these days with with open source things saving that money putting it into something you're gonna have to spend money on anyway which is individuals to actually write the test and maintain them over time absolutely I mean it's interesting right now you know we've come into a complete Microsoft shop where I'm at at, at iprio and you know, we have TFS. Well, the only th- I mean, TFS does all that good linking and stuff, and, and it might be that we haven't implemented the best way. But then I often question uh, the automation tool that they used before I got here was Coded UI, um, and then using their ma- Microsoft Management Test Studio. And it's like you're still piecing things together in one solution, and, and I'm just challenging them now. I'm like, I don't know how much money we spend on TFS and Microsoft Test Manager, and I think it all comes around with our M- MSDN licenses, but you know, TFS doesn't do anything great, whereas, like, we can really put some great things, like, from our, for our Agile transformation. Maybe we use a rally, right? And and then, but that is expensive, right? <laughs> but yeah. you are, then you're starting to focus on the things that it does really, parts of the life cycle of that workflow, you know, kind of focus on the tools that, that do that well. And so, um, you know, open source test automation uh, does it just as well or better than anything I can pay for. So that's my 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 yeah. preference anyways yeah i i hear you i'm i'm on board um the, the, one, the one problem i see with that and paul you can probably echo it because that's probably why you keep in business half the time <laughs> is, is finding um you know upskilling the testers to be able to do the test automation without having to hire somebody to to do that right so like i'm constantly upskilling my testers on how to, to code ui automation and then upskilling them on how to write c-sharp code if possible and if if, the t- if I can't upskill the testers, I'm coaching the developers on the Scrum teams, hey, you guys need to help with this, and educating yeah. them on our automation framework, and educating them on how to write you know, feature files and, and helper methods and break up their code so it can be testable. Um, but that's, yeah. it's a constant upskilling and underst- understanding of this needs to happen. Yeah, and that, that's exactly where Beaufort Fairmont comes in and, and helping out with that upskilling and helping out with uh, jumping in when you've got a gap between where the skills are today and where you want them tomorrow. Um, or just if you need a lot of stuff done, we can, we can really help out with automated testing. But um, yeah, I mean, that, that's absolutely true. I think that um, there, there's a lot to be said for, the, for folks who do a really great job at what they do. And that's one of the things that I think is missed so often. And I, I'm, I'm sure that you see that as a big value as, as well as um, there are plenty of people out there who are really great testers. And they do a good job at it. They're detail-oriented. They dig down into why things are the way they are. They're willing to challenge assumptions and challenge a premise with anyone, regardless of, of who they are. 
and get to what the actual issue is with the product. And some of those people don't necessarily need to automate. And I think that's one of the things that you said in the book, if I, if I recall. Is that right, yep. Mary? That, yeah, that's correct. So, so this is an interesting concept because, you know, in the you know, testing world today, and kind of relates a little bit to our, test, our theme um, for the Tisca conference coming up in March, which is what is a tester? Right, and so you know, a couple of years ago, the conference theme was um, testing. Uh, software testing is not dead. If you if you remember, some of the people in the world say us uh, and the community were saying software testing is dead. Well, it's not that they were saying that. You know, we're all going to go to the Google or uh, model of how they test, which would basically means everybody becomes a generalist. There's not a craft of testing anymore. You know, everybody on the team should be able to code. There's no you know who cares about the person who who knows the domain. You know, that's you know, just the just, just going to be a team full of developers, and and we're just going to be all generalists, and we're going to crank out the code. Which you know, ideally, I've never actually seen that work in, in practice. And so what I what I say is that I um and what my my current conference circuit of talking around is is the role of the T the T shaped T shaped tester. And so, um, in my opinion, on every Scrum team, there should be somebody who at core their craft of QA is the core skill set. Is the craft of software testing, and so when you think about the letter T, the you know the body of that T is that software tester. Now the arms are start to be somewhere the things where the testers can bring value. Maybe it's helping the BAs write acceptance criteria is is, is one arm of the T. The other arm of the T might be they really good at release management. Another arm might be that they're good at writing test automation. You know, another one might be that they're good at communicating and being a scrum master. And so we're asking the role of the tester to be a lot more. And so to your point about how, you know, I give you a great example. Right now where I'm at, at IPRIO, I have several testers that are now been put on my team that were ex-product people because the product people at IPRIO used to be the testers. And so, you know, do I take somebody who's got 10 years of product and domain expertise and kick them off my scrum team because they can't automate. No, <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, it takes that's a long time, a lot of information in their head. Can I upskill them to be able to write a test case? Absolutely. And so, on that scrum team, I might have this this business person who understands you know, can write great test cases. And so, what I will do is is I, I'll supplement them with an automation person who really doesn't ever care to write a test case, <laughs> right? And all they want to do is hardcore automate what she's providing. And so what I tell people is there's a certain set of skill sets that we want every scrum team to have. You know, and I want my testers on the team, at least there to be a craft of, of testing, somebody who um, has that tester mindset, right? And then I also want somebody to automate. And if I can have both, and I have had both, by the way, those people do exist, great. And so, um, I, but I want to, I just need to fill in the scrum team gaps. And so when people say, Mary, you know, we want all automators. I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> you know, like some of my worst bugs have been when I've got two hardcore automators on a team. Yeah. And neither one actually actually checked the UI. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. The button doesn't work. <laughs> How did y'all manually test it? Well, we did a manual test it. We only automated it, right? And so, um, so I, you know, I just look at the skill sets of the people who I have. And then I look at the skill sets of the gaps that we have. And either I supplement it with a you know a tester who can do both a manual and automation, or I supplement it with just the automation or just the manual. So I guess my point being is, um, you know, I, ideal world to have two testers with a tester mindset that I teach to code and who can be good coders. That's perfect, right? 
it rarely happens. And so if I, you know, have a manual tester who's got 10 years of business domain who can write great test cases and I have an automation person over here who is a great automation person, you know, we just know that potentially in a scrum session or a sprint that, that there might be a little bit of a bottleneck there because the flow of work might not be right and that the developers on the team will have to, you know, fill those gaps to help those, those blockers. Then we've got a, we've got a great team. And so my whole thing to people is, you know, it's it's about upskilling the people, fixing the gaps, and then creating a team that can be able to deliver the work um, that it needs to do from the definition of done perspective. Does that make sense? It does, and I, I think that's really cool to have kind of a motif or a, an idea, a big idea like that that you carry around with a T um, from one presentation to the next or one conference to the next. You mentioned Tisca sixteen, and that's coming up in March, if I recall. March 2nd and 3rd, we have workshops on the 2nd. Uh, we have three full-day workshops and four half-day workshops. Great lineup with uh, the likes of Janet Gregory, a uh, well-known speaker in the industry, um, probably the leading edge. She wrote the book called Agile Testing, <laughs> um, and she's written a second follow-up called More Agile Testing. So we're super fired up to have her for our keynote for the conference and as well as a full-day workshop um, on the day before the conference. And then... We have the likes of Rob Sabrin, who's written several books, uh, Bob Galen, several books. Um, really excited about our lineup this year. One of the biggest things, you know, we, we felt a little pressure this year when um, the Triagile group put, in, put on their conference at the McKinnon Center, and they charged people $100 a ticket. And we have been on the $150 to $200 range um, just because, uh, you know, we, the Friday Center in Chapel Hill is a nice venue. Uh, we pay our speakers well. Some conferences don't do that. We pay our speakers well. But this year we thought we'd go all in, $100, match that, everybody else, and hopefully to get the amount of same people, four or 500 people to at the event um, and then you know worry about the cost later. And so um, it's a really good value for your money. Paul's going to speak. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm going to talk. It's going to be fun. Uh, I'm doing a talk on data strategy and automation, so it's going to be really interesting to see how that comes together. And I'm putting together some um, side materials as well as I go along, so should be fun. I went last year, and I really wish that I had been there for both days. I kind of dropped in, did my talk, and, and bailed out, and it was because of just kind of life at the time. <laughs> I'm sorry that I did that because... This is in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. It's um, it's kind of the this this conference feels like the mecca of all testing in this area because there must have been how many people were there three three hundred people or four hundred people yeah about two fifty three hundred yeah yeah and it was there were there were a lot of really great people a lot of good questions a lot of different talents and skills a lot of different um, types of workshops going on. The keynote was very good by by Bob last year. I can't wait for this one. It is a nice venue. Um, it's a it's a well put together, well organized conference, specifically on the craft of software testing. And I think you guys have done a terrific job. Are you in charge of it again this year? Because you did a great job last year. Yeah, so I'm, I'm speaker chair. So Bob kind of stepped back a few years ago and said, "Hey, Mary, you know this is all yours now." And so, uh, but the. the People on the board are tremendous, um, Cheryl Klein and Larry Copes and uh, Greg Johnson and Suli. Um, so it takes a little bit of a village. That's why we only do it every two years because it's, it's, it's hard. <laughs> it's a lot of stress too, I would imagine. Um, but it, it's, it's not as much stressful. Like this year we were a little ahead of schedule. I'm trying to nail down the speakers and the content um, 
you know, by end of in September, typically I'm end of October, November, getting people off the schedule. So we're 95% committed. Um, and, uh, you know, we've got, we've got like seven or eight past uh, keynote speakers at major conferences doing track talks for us. Oh, that's so, awesome. That's so cool. From, from that perspective, that's, that's positive. I mean, we, one of the things that we struggle with is marketing. So anything we can do to get marketing out there, we're going to hit the agile groups and, you know, even hit like Richmond, Virginia or Atlanta, Georgia or Charlotte, because at a hundred bucks a pop, I mean, it's a good value to, uh, for a close t- um, testing conference. coming. It is. And, and I mean, the, the, the decision on a manager's mind, it, there's just none. It's just obvious. I mean, spending two days at this thing with, with your people and paying a hundred dollars is going to more than pay itself back in very it's, short order. It's only a hundred. Yeah. This year it's only a hundred for the, the conference. That That's seems, awesome. That seems like a ridiculously low figure. Yeah. Yeah. That That's was a goal. Cool. <laughs> that was a goal. So let's That's see cool. how many people we can fill in and, and uh, talk about. And I'm hoping to get a few agilists maybe that aren't specifically to testing. So that way we can, you know, every year it's usually typically just testers and software engineers. And, and um, it would be interesting now if we can hit some of the agile, uh, agile meetups and, and marketing around that. It's one of those things that's like, I bet that we can get some product owners who want to learn a little bit about testing and some developers maybe more interested. So that's the goal. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I think a lot of people are looking forward to it. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess I had a couple other questions about iPrio. I, I really know nothing about iPrio. Can you tell us a little bit about the company that you're at these days and why you're there and what you love about it? Um, yeah, so I've been there. I appreciate that. I've been there about 10 weeks now. Um, we are a, you've been around about 14, 15 years. They actually relocated. Uh, so we have an office in New York and then they decided that they want to uh, dip into our talent pool in, in the in the South a little bit. And so they've opened up the Raleigh office here about two, two and a half years ago and promised the, the state that we'd bring about 200 jobs and we're already at 250 and, and still growing. And so we do, what's really cool is we do uh, IPO software. So we facilitate companies going private to public. And so you never really hear about us. You know, you never, if you did hear about us in that situation, that would not be good. <laughs> um, <laughs> so is but, this like with Sarbanes-Oxley? You're trying to, you have some tool to implement that? Uh, not necessarily that way. So basically if, say, for instance, one day, hopefully IPRIO will be, you know, we're, we're owned by Blackstone right now um, and Goldman Sachs. Um, one day we want to be traded on the public market. And so, um, you know, we, we want to be a customer of ourselves, right? And so uh, when that happens, you know, when we decide that, yes, we want to make this deal, um, then we'll use our software to be able to do the trades and things like that to occur. Um, so so it's, it's, pretty, it's a pretty cool business model. We have lots of – we actually have about 25 products, and that's one of the reasons that I came is, is there's two things I love to, to, to help out with and, and to teach, and that is one is the waterfall to agile transition. And then uh, two is just the best practices in Agile testing. And so um, currently at IPRIO, we're transitioning from Waterfall to Agile. And I have about 25 products. And so from a you know, testing leadership perspective, this is the biggest, one of the biggest problems I've ever had, had to solve. And what I love about the company is, is, is they're all in. We know we've, we've hired some really good people to come in and do the transformation. Um, Bob Gillen comes in and does consulting for us. Um, and we're trying to do it the right way. And so you always hear people's versions of Agile. Well, you know, we're trying to do as close to Agile as we can and uh, hiring the right people to do it. And 
you know, looking forward to what the next year or two offers, uh, um, has to offer for us. That's cool. Well, my understanding is you've been very successful everywhere you've been, and I would expect no less with this. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> so, um, have you seen James? I, I thought James was on this <laughs> podcast, and I haven't heard him. Well, we're here. Oh, <laughs> there you are. Okay. Did you have anything to add to this, James? Yeah, I just had, you know, I just like Paul, I read the book, uh, not uh, this week, but uh, the, the previous week, and actually a lot of stuff in reading the book brought up a lot of memories about uh, working at. Uh, at Microsoft and the company I worked at before that was purchased by Microsoft uh, and even doing some consulting for some folks uh, after that fact and kind of helping their teams go from totally unskilled to more skilled, uh, especially with respect to, you know, developing a, a test infected culture. And, and that's one thing that I found that was the most difficult thing to, to, to make a change was to promote the culture of understanding <laughs> Like, why do you want to test software? How would you, you know, how to get developers to appreciate what testing is and why they would want to do it for themselves? So if you had, uh, if you had one, you know, one bullet in the chamber uh, to to change the culture of an organization, what's that bullet? <laughs> oh man, that's an awesome question. Um... That, I mean, that's what I'm doing now, um, and in the culture change <laughs> is the kicker, right? And yeah. so it's interesting. So let me give you the roundabout answer as best as I can to tell you how I've done it in the past and how I'm doing it in the future. Uh, it's interesting. I have a guy um, who I used to work with at Eye Contact, uh, Lee Easton, who's now the director of, our, of DevOps at iPrio, who's come to work here as well, and he's a grassroots guy. He believes all cultures change should happen at the grassroots so, grassroots level. So it's just inspiring the team to want to do better and the team rallying um, to say, yes, we want to build better quality code and we're not going to be told, no, we cannot any longer, right? And and I'm on the up, and I agree with grassroots, but I also believe that there are some, you know, for my level, some general awareness around those culture changes and um, educating my up, my boss, the CTO, and those across the org and down what good looks like, right? And so while grassroots is good, you still have to have some type of uh, guidance around that. So I was, me and Lee always go around and around about, you know, you go do your grassroots thing. I'm going to go do my, you know, m you know, implementing guardrails kind of philosophy from top down a little bit yeah. in education, and we'll see see where we meet in the middle from a culture change perspective, right? And uh, so the long story short is, is I feel like culture change, you have to be transparent about it. You have to let people know you're, what you're going to be going through soon. And so from a silver bullet, what I often do, and this is what I'm going to be doing here, is I train the whole team on our automation framework. I train the whole team on risk-based testing strategies. When I say the whole team, I mean the scrum team, the developers and the testers. You know, I train the whole team on what we're, how we're going to be measuring good from now on, right? We're going to go from measuring, you know, amount of bugs we find and test cases we create to maybe one thing, which is how many post-release sev ones and sev twos we have, and let's trend that over time. And so it's really when I've changed culture, it's more from an education and transparency around the whole Scrum team getting the same training from a testing perspective. I don't differentiate developers and testers, if that makes sense. It does. It does. That's good. 
You know, it's, it's interesting to me to hear this talk about training because uh, one of the things that, you, that, that you're alluding to there, I think, Mary, is with training, more than just education happens. Whatever the content of the training is, sometimes hardly even matters. And I know in your case, it totally matters. Um, but there's this interesting side effect with training. When you spend a whole bunch of time with people, <laughs> you, you kind of get to know them and you talk more and you communicate better. Um, you learn more of the why behind things, more of the reasoning behind things. And it, it, the, the group that's in a training session together, if they're communicating well, if they're, if it's an open training session where everybody's communicating their ideas and values, um, you tend to form a culture with that, I think. You're right. I mean, look, uh, if you read the book, the last chapter is around having a vision and having a goal and, and executing against that. Right. And so, you know, what I what I tell people is that um, if you tell people the goal and why you're doing something and the benefits that they're going to get, if you educate them along the way and make them understand that there's baby steps to get to that goal, we're not going to do it overnight, right? I learned that really quickly that you, to make change, you can't just go in and like a bull in a china shop, right? That's that was me my first ten years, and I realized. That's not how you implement change. <laughs> and so, um, you know, the last seven to eight years is all around, you know, educating people on changes about to happen, why we're doing it, what the goal is, making it really hard for them to say no, <laughs> and then educating on how we're going to make the steps to that change that we're going to have. You know, this sprint, we're going to implement this, and next sprint, this, and then next sprint, this. And so over a span of a year, we've had baby steps to get to this what vision of, of the three pillars and the good looks like. Yeah. And you talked about grassroots versus a uh, top down installation of culture. And I think yeah. that making it hard to say no to that, that has to come from the top. <laughs> I, I think yeah. that's very, very helpful in culture changes. Yeah. I'll give you a, you'd appreciate this one, Paul. So, um, part of my vision is to create this open source automation framework for IPRIO. So it's an IPRIO, you know, uh, framework that every product uses, right? Well, 95% of our products are .NET based. And we have one product that is Java based. And it's like, oh man, do I have to create a, a whole, because in my belief, and as you read in the book, is that, you know, the, the frame, automation framework is in the same um, uh, language as the back end of the, you know, um, product that you're using. And so I'm like, oh, do I have to create a whole new automation framework just for this Java, Java product? Or can I, can we build a you know uh, a, a pre framework that can handle Java and .NET products? We can do it from a JavaScript front end perspective, but it's the back end, right? When we want to call in APIs and things like that. And uh, so it was from it was interesting because because I've been coaching everybody that I'm saying, look, you're going to get this new pre automation framework, and here's the benefits. And what you have is not good. It's coded UI. It's it's very fragile. Um, we don't want, you know, our automation pyramids upside down. We have 90% of our automation at the UI. We really only want 10% at the, you know, 10% at the UI, not 90%. And so the, I got an email back from the Java team and they were like, yeah, I think we're just going to stick with what we got. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, I hear you. And so it's, you know, it's educating, it's, 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 it's understanding, it's, 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 best practices and, and facilitating that. Right. Yeah. So. That's a good, good, uh, good analogy. There example is cool. And you give a lot of those good example examples in your book as well as I'm sure in your talks. Um, James, did you have anything else? 
I think the the culture question was the big one because I mean the book the book itself is full of you know lots of lots of meaty uh, crispy technical details but it's for me the culture part is the most interesting because that has to do with you know you're you're talking to people and you know how people get their jobs done you know that's all tribal knowledge that's all culture and to me that's the roughest part to deal with because if you if you can't get that done everything else it's going to fall by the wayside you're 100 percent right and so you know i feel like my job as a leader is to is to come in and say well this is what my vision of the culture should be and this is how we should react and this is how you know um you know how we want to move forward and uh, you know, there's there's two people that the, the, the people either jump on the train and say, I've been asking this for forever and now I'm so glad you're here. And then there's people like, you know, I don't want to do that. <laughs> and so we, we really don't want those people in our culture anyways. And so we might lose some people due to attrition. We're going to try our darndest to keep them because we know how hard it is to recruit in the area and, and, and you know, trying to promise them, hey, look, upskill, just give it a chance, right? It's those, it's those laggards <laughs> of the world. Um, but Part of part of our job, and it's interesting that at Iprio they have this word called a culture hack, and um, you know we're having lots of culture hacks right now, introducing my role to the company because they've never had test leadership at all in the company um, as far as a as a standardization consistency play, and so they're like you know we've, we're creating a culture hack where quality does matter. And we're, we we put ourselves in this position where we want to improve our quality, and we've brought Mary in to be that expert. And um, you know, part of people say, Mary, you're on the phone all day, every day. And and I tell people, fifty percent of my job is selling where we're going, where how we're going to get there, and and making sure they understand the vision and the goal of what I'm trying to do. And then the fifty percent is training is is uh, that's cross my, that's to my peers. That's the product owners and dev managers and, and C-levels and, and, and directors and all that level. And the 50% is, is getting my team to buy into it and the scrum teams to buy into it. And so I'm constantly, all day, every day, just trying to create that cover and that sales pitch, which I, don't, I hate to call it sales pitch, but it really is that of this is why it matters, <laughs> yeah. right? And this is what, what, what we're trying to do. And this is what good looks like. And um, it's, it's a hard – that's why I always tell people when I come in, like you're not going to see quality improve in the first six months I'm here, and you might not even see it improve the first year I'm here because it's a culture change, <laughs> and it takes about a year to two years. There's going to be some quick wins, and we're going to get some consistency, but you know, culture takes a lot of change, and it, and it's a year to two years. Anytime I've come to different organizations to, to make sure that quality is a whole team approach, and it takes that long for everybody to buy in and get the right people on the bus. I hear you. That's excellent. Um, well, look, I think I'm going to wrap up here. Um, Mary, it is so nice to talk to you. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on. I think James and I both appreciate it. This has been fascinating to listen to um, and to talk with you about this. Once again, for our listeners, the book is The Three Pillars of Agile Testing and Quality. Its uh, main author is Bob Galen. That's G-A-L-E-N. Mary Thorne is a co-author on it. And she adds a whole lot of texture and color to each of the examples that Bob gives and the strategies that he gives. Um, just really appreciate you coming on. For our listeners, we will be back on soon with episode four. And James and I are looking forward to it. James, anything you want to leave, leave the listeners with? Like a, a follow me on Twitter. That, James, that joke is worn out. i got to stop that. <laughs> no, but if you are listening, 
thanks a bunch. And if you if you've got feedback, what did you like? What did you not like? Please let us know. Yeah, you know on uh, on Twitter, Reflection AAS, um, or reach out to one of the others of us on Twitter or, um, or or through our websites. There's lots of ways to get to us. Thank you so much, Mary, and uh, we will be back soon, listeners. Thank you very much. Bye.